I, I hope you've got your Bibles open to Judges chapter 13. We are going to read this passage in just a moment. Um, for those of you who are, who are just with us today, we, last week we began a new series on the theme of the Nazarite vow, which is um, a vow that occurs in Numbers chapter 6. And I, I mentioned to you last week how when I texted one of my colleagues um, what we were going to be looking at, the response was, LOL, interesting, which I didn't particularly find that encouraging. And then this week I um, went to a pastor's gathering for two days, and one of the guys who was there asked me, okay, so you finished Ephesians, what are you doing next? And I told him, well, we're doing a series themed on the Nazarite vow. He laughed for 30 seconds straight, which is, <laughs> was certainly more than I expected. And, um, but despite the naysayers, I want to underline that I do feel a deep sense of conviction in terms of what um, God is going to be doing in and through us through this series. I think we tasted something at the beginning of that last week as we unpacked that somewhat obscure chapter, but God's voice rings clear, doesn't it, through his word. And I want to take you, therefore, into the story of the first, the first major story of Nazarite in Scripture, which is the story of Samson. And we're going to be in Judges chapter 13. I'll read to you... Um, majority of this chapter, not all of it, but I want to read down to verse 14, and then we'll just read the last couple of verses in the, uh, the account here. So do have your Bible out open in front of you. It's the seventh book in the Bible if you're struggling to find it there. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God, very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink, or eat any unclean thing. All that I command her, let her observe. 
down at verse 24. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord God of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanedan between Zorah and Eshtaol. We are looking at this theme of the Nazarites. They were men and women who, in obedience to the promptings of God's Holy Spirit, in accordance with what God was doing in their lives, were people who were specially dedicated to God, typically for a season of life, perhaps a short season, but a season nonetheless in which they would dedicate themselves entirely and wholeheartedly to God in a season of worship and take a vow to initiate this time and uh, would have to make sacrifices to mark the end of that season also. Why am I interested in this particular thing? Well, really two reasons. The one is because I'm hoping that as we think about what this devotion to God looks like in the lives of these people and through this vow, that you'll see something of the beauty of a life that is lived for God. Nobody is drawn into this life unless they are attracted to it, unless they feel in their heart a pull and a desire to be God's servant, a desire to live for him. And I hope you'll see something of the attractiveness of that. I remember, as, a, as I mentioned to you last week, how you know, these stories of individuals who've been called to God in special ways have always appealed to me and had a resonance with my heart. And I remember as a boy knowing the story about Eric Liddell. He was, in the 1920s, a young man who uh, was one of the top sprinters in our country. He was a Scot, but ran for Great Britain. And to just jump, jump to the end of his life, his devotion to God led him onto the missions field. And he was a missionary in China and captured um, during the Second World War by the Japanese and became a prisoner of war and passed away not long before the, uh, the, the Second World War came to an end. Um, dying in, on a, in a prisoner of war camp. But that just paints the context of this man's life. And take you back to 1926, the Paris Olympics were on the horizon. And uh, in all the competitions internally within the country, um, this man emerged as the fastest man in the nation and with a very strong chance of winning the gold medal. So quick was he. And he was entered for the 100-meter run. But upon the build-up to the Olympics, it became... Um, it became apparent that the heats were going to take place on a Sunday. And because of his particular convictions and the denominational practice that, that was uh, the norm at the time in his church in Scotland, he refused to run on a Sunday and therefore ended up being disqualified from the race in which he was undoubtedly going to win the gold medal. But, as God often does, there's a verse that's, that's uh, repeated in, in the movie version of his story, that those who honor me, I will honor. Those who honor God, God will honor. It was entered instead for a completely different event in the 400 meters, which uh, I don't know of any athletes in recent history who've, who've managed to run both those races. They, they don't have much crossover. He was entered for the 400 meters, and he won in style and won gold medal there. God honored him and used him mightily in his life and his example and his devotion. I'm hoping that as we think about and dwell on the theme of what devotion to God looks like, you'll just be drawn to this. My other hope that goes alongside that is that the Holy Spirit is going to work in your heart. 
His voice is undeniable. The way he moves within us, the way he calls you to himself. He gently convicts us of sin. But he also begins to stir in you desires to live for him. This is how the Spirit works. And my hope and prayer for you, for us all, is that we'll be hearing the Holy Spirit speak to us in very specific ways, unique ways, ways that are unique to you as individuals. Some of you are not Christian. I want to warn you that when God goes after you, there is something inescapable about his pursuit of your life. You begin to feel desires you never knew you had. You begin to be, take interest in the things of God, quite against your own will and better judgment, you, you might think. God goes after you, but he does it also in his children, people who are part of his family. When you feel you've been wandering or you feel you've been apathetic or you feel your heart has been cold towards him, it's the Holy Spirit who moves in you. And I'm trusting that God's Holy Spirit is going to work in us all. So here we come to this story. I want you to know a few things before we get into its meaning for us. The book of Judges tells the history of the era of the Judges. To put it in the story of Scripture, this is after Israel's exodus and then conquest of the land of Canaan. They've moved in and they've taken occupation of the land according to God's promise. But it'll be some hundreds of years until they first anoint a king, King Saul, to be the first of the kings of Israel that will lead to a sequence of kings and different uh, stories that follow them. So we're living in a moment, the era of the judges, that's in between those two moments. They live in the land, but they're not led yet by a king. And what is interesting about this is that, that the era has a kind of Wild West feel. I, my father was fanatical about westerns, about cowboy films, and so I grew up watching far more of them than is healthy for a young boy. And um, it, it, what, one thing that strikes you about that pioneering era in, in the United States, of course, is that there was a certain lawlessness um, and roughness to life. That um, there were, you know, the goodies and the baddies and the, and, and the different fortunes that befell different people. And certainly that's the way it's portrayed through Hollywood movies, at least. And um, that's pretty much my knowledge of American history summed up for you. <laughs> And, um, and so there's something of that feel that's going on in the era of the judges. This is an interesting time in Israel's history. Very wild, rough, some horrendous and horrific things take place. When you read this book, you'll find it the most shocking of all the books of the Bible, without question. And um, it's, so, it's so fascinating and insight, and honest and insight into human nature. It's the era of the judges. And something else you have to understand is that the judges themselves are God-appointed heroes. Men and women who punctuate the, the story of mainly bleakness and decline, punctuate it with special service to God that, that enables God's people to experience his grace in, in, in temporary ways, I'll say. And it's a diverse cast of characters with different gifts and abilities. Fascinating stories. And another last thing you have to understand about them is how flawed these characters are. Their stories are told without reservation. You know, as Oliver Cromwell requested that his portrait be, be painted warts and all, that is how Scripture tells the stories of these men and women who are varying in their godliness and holiness to him. And Samson is the most famous of them all, and perhaps the most flawed of them all also. 
And this is one of the reasons why it's so important for us to reflect on a story like this. So as we open this account that will take some weeks for us to unpack in full, I'm interested to really explore how God works his redemption, his salvation, how his grace works, and how it works through people, through you, through me, as it's illustrated in this account. Partly we're going to be interested just in God, his grace, his redeeming power, but also that he refuses to do anything except through his servants. Let's begin here. I want to ask what was going on at the time. And how does this particular moment in Israel's history, into which Samson is born, how does this moment relate to the moment in which we live in 21st century London? And what you have to grasp about this era of the judges is this potent way in which it resonates with the time in which we live. I think there are perhaps few books that speak more potently and powerfully and accurately into the time in which we live. Why is that? Well, it's because of the general picture of religious and moral decline that you see taking place in the life of the nation. The Israelites had experienced extraordinary high points in the Exodus as God gives the law to Moses. And then later, under the leadership of Joshua, they were flawed times as well. But they had experienced amazing experiences of God, the giving of the law and the, the, the constituting of a people who want to follow him wholeheartedly, the consecration of their lives and promises. But by the time generations have passed during the lives of the judges, you have seen these cycles of decline. You see that, you know, to use a slightly anachronistic term, the nation has become a kind of post-Christian era. They're in a post-Christian era in the sense that they, they once had a devotion to God, And now they are marked by largely widespread abandonment of worship of God. They're not not faithful to him. And along with their unfaithfulness to God and the idolatry that began to emerge within the life of Israel, the literal worship of idols, there is this, 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 this disgusting and offensive, nauseating moral decline. Really, really horrendous stuff that you read of in this this book. Now, the reason why I think that has such resonance, of course, the obvious reason is that we've seen something of a similar journey in our own nation, of a abandonment of faith, the resurrection of ancient idols, and I don't mean literal carved idols, but I mean the more basic idols that the human heart worships that reemerge in every nation and age throughout history in terms of sex and wealth and power and these sorts of things. And all of it is in a a kind of atmosphere of what you can call moral relativism. Moral relativism. Moral relativism just means that there is no law to guide and control how we think and live and act, that we've cast off God's law, and that right and wrong is defined by feelings, by what each person decides is right in their own heart. That, I think, is an accurate description of the nation in which we are living and the culture in which we are living. We no longer feel bound to a law that's imposed from outside, from God and his scriptures, as our ancestors did. We're rather guided by our own feelings. And this is exactly what was taking place in the ear of the judges. The very last verse 
in the book, chapter 21, verse 25, says that in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's a repeated phrase that occurs numerous times throughout the book. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And what happens when humans behave like this? What happens when we no longer feel bound to a moral structure that's bigger than us, but rather only listen to our moral inclinations that emerge from within us? What happens? Well, what happens always is that you end up descending into something like a kind of moral Darwinism where it's simply survival of the fittest. If you're not governed by the powerful law of God outside of you, you're instead governed by power in our relationships with each other. And you see this particularly, I think, in the era of sexual ethics. Why is it that yet again we are bombarded with the the disappointing, dismaying, and disgusting stories of yet another man who has, you know, in our news this week, another man who has been accused of multiple, multiple um, abusive, sexually abusive encounters with women. And because we created space for this. When the human heart, and I'll say in this particular instance, the masculine heart, is not controlled and governed and limited by God's word and God's law, then strength, power, is the only governor. And the strong will always hurt the weak. And it's not just in the era of sex. It's true in other areas. And you see this playing out all the way through the book of Judges. Horrendous story on one occasion of the rape of a woman that leads to war. And I think these are the kinds of times in which we live right now. Right now. Reflect. Reflect on the scandals that have taken out and and been marked leaders in the Western world. Isn't it the same? It's the same stuff. And it all begins because, as it says here in verse 1, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. How does God respond when people go astray from him. Sometimes, God immediately intervenes to bring chastisement and discipline. He brings pain into your life in order to show you where you're going wrong and draw you back to himself. It's a a measure of his fatherly love in your life. If you abandon him and he begins to introduce you to the pain you'll experience without him and it, it jolts you awake. That is one way that God acts. But more terrifying still is the pattern you sometimes see in Scripture and in history where God doesn't do that. Where, as it says here, listen to what it says. It said, they again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. He gave them up. In Romans chapter 1 in the New Testament, Paul describes this kind of dynamic among humans more generally. When he describes the rejection of God and the descent into idolatry, he says, although they knew God, because God's reality is evident everywhere in creation and in his power, although they knew God, 
He says, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. When we stop being worshippers of God, the human heart immediately sets up its idols. Immediately. And a little further on, Paul then says that God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. God gave them up. And what Paul's describing there is the, the increasing licentiousness and lust that begins to govern human behavior when we reject God. We're driven by our passions. We're driven by our flesh. We're driven by our desires. And there is nothing to control or limit those desires when we reject God. This is true, isn't it? Even on the level of the individual. You know, if this was true of the nation as a whole at the time into which Samson is born, it's true also when individuals walk away from God. It's what Jesus told in that extraordinary parable, the parable of the prodigal son, in which he sets up his story and describes the younger brother going to his father and sending, saying to his father, give me my share of the property. He wanted his inheritance so he could live the life of pleasure that he desired without accountability. Without, and it's a picture of the life that turns away from God, saying, I want your good gifts. I want food and drink and sex and pleasure and all the comforts that your creation can offer, but I don't want you. And the way Jesus tells the story is he says that eventually this boy runs out. He squandered everything. He reaches the bottom. He spent it all. And then it says a famine arose and he began to be in need. I want you to notice one more thing in terms of the background here. How long it all lasts. It's there in the first verse that it says that the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Why is that a significant number? If you've read the Bible, it'll resonate with you for reasons that I'll explain. The reason is because when God delivered his people from Egypt... And brought them into that journey that would lead them into Canaan, the promised land. Do you remember how a 12-day journey turned into a 40-year journey? Because that generation were unfaithful to God. And so God allowed every single one of them, except for Joshua and Caleb, to die in the wilderness. When you come across a moment like this, where it describes 40 years of bleakness and hardship, it's because a generation needs to die. A generation that has been unfaithful, that has abandoned the faith, abandoned God. It's interesting, isn't it, that human story, the human story is marked often by generations. You cast your mind back two generations ago, we find ourselves in the middle of the Second World War, and a generation that's been described as the greatest generation. They were men and women formed by the Depression era, hardy, 
stoic, gritty, with a sense of duty, a sense of what they had to do in order to get things done. And so they, they experience rationing and they experience the war on, uh, from the skies and the men go out and die in the fields. And they've rightly been called the greatest generation. We owe a great deal to them. You jump forward another 40 years and it's been a season marked by mainly peace. And then burgeoning prosperity in the 1980s, the boomer generation and all that, that, that marked them. And then we, we're another 40 years on, aren't we? And it's different again. I'm not sure that we have very much in common with the greatest generation of 80 years ago. We're different again, aren't we? We've not suffered, for one thing, not not particularly um, as a people together. And there are certain things that are good about this generation and certain things that aren't good. But we're different. And here's what I want you to understand. The same is true generationally in Scripture through a spiritual lens. Sometimes whole generations abandon God, And that's what you're seeing happen here in this, the era of the judges. Generations of God-fearing people turning their back on him. And the decline and the spiritual depression and suffering that comes on the back of that. But I want to say a word of hope here, friends. That just as generations can, can die in abandonment of God, so also new generations can emerge. New generations can emerge and new hope can be birthed as God begins to stir people by his spirit to seek him afresh. There is no doubt that the general trend in the UK has been one of spiritual decline for a long time now. Generations successively abandoning faith. But there is in my heart, a real hope for a turnaround, the birth of a new generation. Listen to Psalm 24. The psalm asks, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So describing there intense, devoted godliness, purity of heart and hands that is able to receive blessing. And, and listen to this verse. It says, Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. My desire, my prayer, and the impetus in leading a church in a city like this at a time like this is that God will use us and others like us to be part of the reawakening, to be a generation that is born in the midst of spiritual darkness, to be a generation that begins a new chapter of new hope against the background of real decline and degradation. And I think we all can agree that along with the moral decline we've seen in our nation, we're also now seeing decline on every front. I'm not sure there's ever been, in my memory, a more hopeless time in the political sense and the economic sense. And some of that may be misguided, but certainly the mood isn't good, is it? And of course, this is the cycle. God lets this happen. He gives them up. And our hope should never lie in the scene out there, the economics, the political leadership, that's not where our hope lies. Our hope lies in the move of God. 
when God gets hold of people, when he gets hold of you, when he calls you out and calls you to himself, that's what this is about. I want to ask then the question, well, if that's the background and what was taking place at the time, how do things turn around? How does hope begin again? How does hope start afresh? And the answer, the vital thing I want you to see here in this chapter is that it all begins with God. It begins with him. This is what the author wants you to see. One thing that's really interesting about the opening to this chapter is that as he describes the real bleakness of the situation, normally throughout the book of Judges, there's this extra phrase that's added where he says, and they cried out to the Lord. Normally, when they reach rock bottom, it drives God's people to prayer. But here, that's absent. Things have gotten so bad in the life of Israel, they're not even praying. They don't even have it in them to turn to God. So bleak and so dark has the scene become spiritually. And of course, when we're then introduced to Manoah and his, particularly his wife, who's described here as being barren and having no children, we're meant to see the, the absence of the blessing that's supposed to characterize the life of Israel, fruitfulness and fruitfulness in the womb. And you're starting to see something of the barrenness and the dryness of their spiritual life, even as it's depicted through the life of this woman. And where does God choose to move and to act? Well, he moves there. When they're not praying and in a barren womb. That's God, friends. He acts when we're at our lowest ebb sometimes. Why? Because he wants to maximize the glory of his grace. Because there's nothing about the situation that deserves his help. It's all generosity and love from God. Maximize his grace and minimize any pride that remains within us. Any independence. I want to tell you, friend, this is how God will work in your life if you have turned your back on him. There'll come a point in your life when you think it can't get worse than this. Because God wants you to exhaust your pride, your sense of independence, your sense that you can do it without him. He wants you to come to the end of yourself and realize that all you can create is mess. And everything that you put your hand to is tainted. It's only then that you'll then turn back to him. And his grace will move into your life and he'll see the freshness of his goodness. This, by the way, is what I think Jesus meant when he described, do you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, when he begins with the Beatitudes, those eight or nine statements, where he says, blessed or happy is the one who. And the first Beatitudes are describing this. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, poor, poverty of spirit, complete bankruptcy spiritually, because he adds, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's when you have nothing left that God can fill you with his riches. He says, blessed are those who mourn. It's when you've come to the point of sadness and grief and emptiness. He says, because they shall be comforted. It's the people who have actually grieved their condition, to whom God moves. Blessed are the meek, he says. You've been humbled. You've reached the point of no, nothing, no sense of independence or self-assurance anymore. 
Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Everything you ever wanted is in God, not in your efforts to run away from him. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's when you have this famine in your soul. For they shall be satisfied, he says. That is the experience of everyone who has truly encountered the grace of God. You have to reach the point of emptiness, of bankruptcy, the bleakness of life without him so that you will turn to him in utter dependence. I just want to say a few things briefly then about this work of God. It is totally sovereign, first of all. God's grace is not something we deserve. And it's not something we even initiate. It's something that comes from him. When he decides in the generosity of his love, I'm going to change this person's life. I'm going to change this situation. And that's exactly what we see taking place here when the angel comes and appears to Manoah's wife and starts to speak words of hope and renewal and salvation. It's totally sovereign, God's work. It's wonderfully supernatural also. I love how the story tells us of the appearance of the angel of the Lord and the miracle of a barren womb conceiving a son. And, you know, why does God work in these supernatural ways? It's because he wants to leave his fingerprints all over his, his gracious story of salvation. And you should hear the resonances in this story with the story of, you know, when, when I was reading it, perhaps you thought, this sounds a bit like the nativity stories. An angel appears to a woman and, you know, Elizabeth is barren, Mary's a virgin. And then there's the promise of, of sons, John the Baptist, the Lord Jesus Christ, and new, newness of life. And he'll begin to save people. All of it is there deliberately because God, these are God's fingerprints, friends. When God's working, he does supernatural things. The gospel is a supernatural story. The death of the Son of God and the resurrection to new life. And you cannot be a Christian unless you believe in the supernatural, that God did it. But then the story of every individual whose life has changed will bear the fingerprints of the supernatural work of God. He takes you from what you were and he transforms your life. And it cannot be explained apart from the work of God. It's sovereign, it's supernatural. And his salvation is always preceded by his promise. Listen to the words of the angel. He tells the women in verse 5, halfway down, it says, He shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. When God's about a new work, he speaks it into being. When he's beginning something new, it is foretold by his word and by his prophets. There's a verse in Amos that says that the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. And friends, this is why we cherish scripture. Because without it, we are hopeless creatures, afraid of everything that might befall us individually or personally, the sicknesses and the sufferings and the, the experiences of life, or that might befall the human race, the takeover of AI, the, the nuclear obliteration, the, 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 the final harvest before the fields are exhausted, whatever, whatever your chosen fear of choice about human, how, how the human race will die. These are the things that dominate many people's lives. Because without scripture, that's what we're left to, just just the horror of life, the bleakness of life. You're going to die. But with Scripture, we have hope. And it's characteristic of God that as he's beginning a new work, it's preceded by his word. God's word brings his work, fore foretells his work. He speaks it into being. 
That is God's way. And friend, we need to listen, therefore, to the hope that comes through Scripture. Now, let me bring you to a final point. We've looked at the context and we've considered how God begins to work in fresh ways. And I want to ask one last question here. How does God accomplish his work? How does he put his saving plan in motion? And the answer I want you to take hold of, friends, is that God always acts through people. If you mentally recapitulate in your mind the major stories in Scripture, the saving moments, the acts of God in Scripture, you'll find that they are always stories of his work in and through people. Cast your mind back to the flood that took place. What does God do? He finds a righteous man, Noah. And the human race has hope because he begins afresh through a family. You jump forward in the book of Genesis to the famine that affects what's described as the whole world, the Egyptian world at the time. How does God save? Well, he saves by finding a boy called Joseph and putting him in a position of power in Egypt where he can save his people. Then when 400 years later, when Israel are captive in, in Egypt, they're slaves. How does God begin to work? Well, he finds Moses out in the wilderness tending his sheep and says, you're going to deliver my people. And when God wants to begin his work of inhabiting the earth with his glory, and it all starts with the building of a temple, how does that temple get built? Well, the, the idea is birthed in David's heart, and David's son Solomon becomes the builder who will build the temple, a mark of God's intention to fill the whole earth with his glory. And then when Christ, the Son of God, ascends into heaven, though all of us would have chosen, stay here, Jesus, stay among us, he ascends to heaven and he commissions his people to be his temple, his, his army, his bride on the earth, to be the conduits of his work. He calls us, he calls us to be those through whom he will fulfill his purposes on earth, the church. God always works through people. And we know that there are a couple of truths in operation simultaneously that on the one hand, nothing is possible without God. Nothing good ever takes place without God's initiative. It's always from him, to him, and for him. But at the same time, here's the marvel, that he does nothing without working it through us. That all the good God wants to accomplish in the world is through you, where he's put you, among your family, your friends, in your workplace, on your street, in your love, your service, your proclamation, where you are, that is where God is working. He won't work independently of you. He wants to work through you, through his people. Friend, this would stir you up. The calling then, and this is the entire point of this whole Nazarite vow, is that you say to God, yes, I'm willing. And I want to prepare myself that I'll be used by you. Now, it's interesting that in Samson's case, he didn't make that choice. God chose him. But remember, the Nazarite vow in number six is a voluntary vow in most cases. 
Men and women stirred by the work of God in their heart choose. They put their hands up and say like Isaiah did, here I am, send me, use me. I want to volunteer and enlist to be your servant in this world. I can't imagine life having meaning unless it's lived in service to you. I'm here for you, God, not for myself. That's the point of the vow. So let me ask this as we bring this to a close. What is it that God requires in those he chooses to use? And slightly as a foretelling of what's coming, we need to just understand some negatives here. God isn't looking for your gifts. Giftedness, when it operates without character, is a road to disaster and ruin. Our world promotes giftedness. We've largely abandoned the pursuit of character. We no longer have many standards by which we measure good character. We're not interested so much in character until, as I was saying earlier, people do scandalous things. We promote giftedness. All, everything from your schooling through to your workplace and promotions has always been a recognition of giftedness. But in Scripture, we see that gifts operating without character are a road to disaster. And Samson will show us this. It's a tragic story of an outsized gift operating without the foundation of character. So God isn't so much interested in your gifts. He can supply the gifts. Nor is he interested in your courage, in your confidence, in your self-assurance. Again, I think this is something that's championed in our world. We have phrases like, fortune favors the brave. You know, you want to get lucky in life, or you're more likely to get lucky if you act courageously. Or the, this, the, uh, the motto of the SAS, who dares wins. And there's truth to this, isn't there? That the people who will make a den, generally speaking, and the people who back themselves, who have a sense of confidence and courage and will just push forward. I recognize that. But what does that become when it's not rooted in character? Well, it becomes pride. And the scriptures warn us. They say that pride comes before a fall and haughtiness before ruin. When you're proud and haughty and believe in yourself and your own gifts, the end result is always that you crash. And again, Samson is an exam- example of this, as we'll see. The tragedy of giftedness and pride, confidence and self-assurance without that substance of godliness. And so the answer is obvious to you, isn't it? What is it that God wants in the people that he uses? What does he want for you individually? What does he want for us as a people? What is his highest desire and priority? The answer is our holiness, friends. Our holiness. This is why when God speaks to Manoah's wife and says, I'm putting my finger on the boy you're about to conceive, what is stipulated for him is that he become a Nazarite. That even from the the time of her pregnancy, that she is not allowed to drink wine or strong drink or eat unclean food. Because even from conception, this boy is set apart to be a Nazarite because God wants him to be holy. 
set apart for him. I find it an interesting detail that when Manoah hears about this from his wife and then he has the opportunity to, see, to meet the angel and ask his questions of the angel. Did you hear how he asked his question? He said, he said, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? His manner of life and his mission. And the angel's answer is interesting because he, he completely ignores the second question there about the mission. He only answers the first question about the manner of life. And he underlines that he can't eat anything that comes from the vine or the, the wife can't or eat anything unclean and that she must observe this calling because the boy's to be a Nazarite. And what I understand that to mean is this. Let God take care of the mission. Let God take care of the what and how of what it is that he would call his people to do, what he's calling you to do. You take care of living a life of holiness and of repentance before him. That was what Manoah and his wife were meant to to build into this boy, Samson. As we'll see, it ends in tragedy as he is so flawed. But you hear the heart of God, don't you? What he wants in you, what he wants from you. This is the urgent need, friend, for today. We're living in an age, I think, of real spiritual darkness. And that isn't just true in the world. That's true also in the church. It's not just the case, is it, that the world has abandoned God. I think you will often find many Christians who've abandoned the gospel and abandoned any effort to take seriously what holiness looks like. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've thought that the demands of Christ are unreasonable and that the essence of it is is love and that as long as you are a loving person and you're fulfilling his command, you have totally misunderstood what it means to love. But when God's acting, when he's at work, when he's on the move, what does he look for? He's looking for holiness. As the prophet said to Asa, that the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the earth, looking for those whose hearts are set on him to give them strong support. As Christ said, you are the salt of the earth. The salt loses its saltiness. It's not good for anything. What does God want of us, friends? He wants us to be holy. He wants you to walk in holiness. The Holy Spirit is speaking now. I believe that each time that we explore these themes around this Nazarite vow, the Holy Spirit is going to be doing his surgery in our hearts to call us back to himself. For different ones of you, there'll be different moments in these weeks. And God is dealing with you in specific ways. What is he saying to you now? And you may think this is impossible. I think if you're not a Christian, you listen to what I'm saying, you think there's something that appeals to you, isn't there? You think life isn't working as it is, The idea of living a life of devotion to God actually has some appeal to it, but it seems impossible. And I agree with you, it actually is. 
And every Christian sat here will give testimony to that. They'll say, I'm, I'm a flawed person. My life is characterized by much contradiction and mess. This is why I think this story points to Jesus. That even as we're being introduced to this flawed hero, Samson, the resonances of the circumstances of his birth are telling us about the greater Samson yet to come. The Lord Jesus Christ, predicted and promised by an angel, born into the most barren of wombs, the womb of a virgin, to begin to save his people. And what does Christ do? He makes you holy. That's his saving work. And your calling is not to think, oh, how can I figure this out? How can I live a holy life? Your calling is to respond and turn your face to Jesus. To receive his grace afresh every day. The forgiveness that wipes you clean and washes away your sin and deals with your past. And the Holy Spirit who comes to move in you and shape you and reform you so that you can live a life of dedication and holiness to him. That's what he wants. Do you want to respond to Jesus now? If you're not a Christian, friend, all you do is you turn to him and say, God, forgive me of my sin. I want to follow you. Come and tell us if you prayed that prayer. We want to help you. But I am convinced, beyond convinced, that the reason why God is, is, the reason I think he led me to speak on this series at this season is because he's wanting to do that work in us as his people. He wants to do it in you. And there's hope in that. Because when the Holy Spirit is calling you to himself in holiness, it's the beginning of a new era in your life, a new season in your life. It's the start of something new. Don't you want that, brother, sister, friend?